Well, good morning. It is good to gather together in this way and look into God's Word and the wisdom that He has for us. It is another beautiful fall day as we do it in this way, and whether you are joining us on Facebook or YouTube or whether you will be with us live at our church auditorium, uh, we're just glad to have you with us. And uh, this message today, uh, we finished off our series on the five ones, and uh, I have a couple of, of messages kind of in between this and a new series that we'll be beginning in November on finding the hope. And so this is a bit of a one-off message. Um, it's a little bit self-indulgent, to be honest. Uh, it's a sermon that I needed to preach to myself. I needed to hear it. Uh, but since it's God's Word, I'm 100% confident that it's a sermon that you need to hear as well, a message uh, from Scripture speaking to us as God's people and uh, speaking to those who perhaps are not yet God's people. Um, this message has a lot to say about God's intention in all of our lives and how He is acting. And basically we're going to be looking at, if you want to turn in your Bibles or you want to get there ahead of time, uh, we'll be looking in Matthew chapter 9. And it's a part of Matthew 9 that we didn't actually cover as we were going through our Matthew series. And so we're going back to touch on something I didn't look in depth at at that time. Um, you know what God's always doing? He's always doing something new. God may be the same yesterday, today, and forever, but what God is doing is always new and fresh and invigorating and life-giving. And here we are in Halliburton, and God is doing something new. And we need to start to talk again about God doing new things. This is a new season, a new year. There's new ideas. There's new hope. There's new opportunity. And as Christians, we've experienced the new life. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We live in a new covenant. We look forward to a new kingdom. We live a new life, and we will receive a new body, and we are a new creation. God, through Jesus, is in the business of doing something new. And this is the essence of what I needed to hear for myself and what I think we need to hear today. It's sometimes easy for me to forget this, that God's plan for me is not set in the past, that it's set in the future, that I should not long for what has been, but yearn for what will be, that his mercy is new every morning, Lamentations 3 says, like fresh-baked bread, that his plans are for my future, Jeremiah 29 says, that he has put my sins behind him, Isaiah 38 says, and likewise I am to forget the past and press on towards the goal, as Paul does in Philippians 3, 12-13. All of these messages of Scripture are that the past is behind us, that God is for us, he's for our future, not our past, and that he is for something new in our life. And so instead of remembering the freshness of the abundant life that God has put in me and planned for me, I find myself wandering into routines and patterns of behavior and patterns of thought and feeling that might have started out being paths of joy in the past, but now are just ruts that are too well-traveled and too familiar. I find myself wanting the old things, or I'm focusing on the wrong things. I'm making small things important and totally overlooking the really important things. And I think this is a common struggle. The reality of living in our fallen world with our bodies and our minds that are rooted in the physical and that crave stability and routines and predictability and certainty, and we enjoy the comfort of what we know, even if what we know isn't good for us. Even if what we know isn't right, we still prefer it. 
And that's especially true now after several months of this COVID-19 thing. We're all feeling it. We're feeling just the simple nostalgia for the past, the desire for the old and the stable, the routines that we used to have. It's easy to forget that God is still doing new things. We may feel stuck, but God isn't stuck. And there's something new for you and for me and for our church this very week is a new week. This month is a new month. There's a new season that is upon us, and we must anticipate what God is doing. So as Christians, we need to remember that Jesus came to do something completely new. Jesus came in a way that nobody expected to do things that nobody could imagine with an authority that nobody else had. Jesus came as light into darkness, as life into a dead world, to initiate a new relationship with God and to infuse his people with a new spirit of power like they never had before. Jesus is about newness. And so we, as his people and as his creation, need to anticipate the newness that Jesus brings. Let me just pray before we look into Matthew and what God has to say about this. Father God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for this morning and this opportunity to preach it. I thank you that you speak to me. You speak to others. You speak to those even that are seeking. And your message resounds. Your word does not go forth and return void. It is living and active, as sharp as a two-edged sword. Father, we pray that it would cut to our heart uh, in the way that transforms us and sets us free of the past and brings us into fresh, new, and abundant life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Matthew that we have been looking at recently, and you can go back pretty much all this year, we've been looking at Matthew, so you can go back and look at those messages. We've gotten up to Matthew chapter 16. It's particularly interested, this book, in demonstrating the amazing new power and authority that's in Jesus. And I would call this power of Jesus disruptive power. And all through the Gospel of Matthew, we have found accounts of the miracles of Jesus. In Matthew 8, uh, the authority of Jesus is demonstrated by the healing of the sick. And then we see his authority demonstrated in, over nature in the calming of a storm. And then even authority over demonic powers by casting out demons. And then in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus' authority, this disruptive power, is demonstrated in another way. It's not spectacular like the miracles, but it's penetrating. And for Christians, it's unsettling. In many ways, the, the authority that Jesus exerts over us in Matthew 9 is far more personal and far more likely to make us bristle or to resist his authority or maybe just squirm in our seats as it hits closer to home than calming storms and casting out demons and healing the sick. We can understand that kind of power that Jesus has, and we are amazed by that power and celebrate that power that God has to be miraculously active even in our lives. But the disruptive power and the disruptive authority of Jesus to actually speak to our hearts and to our consciousness and to our minds and to our families and our history, that authority is very unsettling, and that's where we start to pull away or to push back. Let's read Matthew 9. We'll see what what I'm getting at there. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, so he's called Matthew, and then he's gone and eaten in Matthew, a tax collector's house. And he's eating 
with people that the Pharisees would never expect him to eat with. And so they question him, and he gives an answer. That's the first story. Then after calling Matthew, he tells another story. Or not a story, but another account of what's going on in Jesus' life. It says, then the disciples of John came to him. First it was the Pharisees, now it's the disciples of John. Saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Okay, so what's happening here? We often run across these verses about the cloth and the wineskin, and we think, what is Jesus saying here? So what is happening here, and why does he use these two particular examples after these two accounts of what he's been asked by the Pharisees and the disciples? The first thing to notice here, again, is that Jesus is doing something new. Jesus is not acting in ways that fit with either the religious people of his time, neither the Pharisees, nor the other religious people of his time, John the Baptist and his disciples. The two couldn't be more opposite, the Pharisees and John the Baptist. But they are both disturbed by what they're seeing Jesus do, because Jesus is doing something new that doesn't fit into either of their religious paradigms. In both stories, people are coming to Jesus to question his religious practice, his, his method of doing or not doing the normal routines and traditions of religious life and even the law. So in the first story, the first account that I gave, it's why are you sharing a meal with these people? How are you claiming to be righteous? How do you claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God, a, a rabbi, a righteous person, when you're sharing bread with these undesirable people who are disobedient and far from God and blatantly sinful? And then in the second account of what Jesus does, the question is, why don't the disciples of Jesus fast when the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist are both fasting? Both the Pharisees and John the Baptist believe that fasting is right, but Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. And so each story is asking Jesus, why don't you do things the way good religious people do? Why don't you follow our rituals and our customs and our traditions? Why are you disrupting the safe and stable order of things? You want us to be righteous, but why aren't you acting righteously? And Jesus will give them two answers for both of those questions. The first one, that a physician is for the sick, and that's why he eats with sinners. The physician is not for healthy people, and I've not come for healthy people. I've come for sick people. And then the second one is feasts are for weddings. I'm here. The bridegroom is here. This is the time of feasting. There'll be a time when the bridegroom is gone, and then you can fast. Uh, but feasting, feasting times are for weddings, and right now is the wedding. So that's his answers, and we touched on those. But apart from his answers, the key to unlocking his replies, as is often the case, lies in the illustrations at the end of the passage in verse 16 and 17. And Jesus uses two very everyday situations to illustrate his answers and why what he's saying is true. He uses unshrunk cloth and new wine in wineskins. And you know how cloth works or clothing works in the dryer, right? You put a brand new pair of jeans in the dryer, uh, you, you wash it, and then you dry it, and you know what you thought was your size is no longer your size anymore. My jeans right now can no longer afford to shrink. I buy exactly my waist to that size, and it cannot shrink because if it shrinks, then they're no longer going to fit. And that's just the reality of me and my physique right now. Um, 
But you know that this is the case with clothing, and we often buy pre-shrunk clothing for exactly that reason. And Jesus says that you would never use unshrunk cloth to patch an old garment, because as soon as you wash and dry that garment, the new cloth is going to shrink, it's going to pull away from the old cloth that's already shrunk, and it's going to tear the garment and make it even worse than before. So the point of the illustration is that the new does not match the old. And then he makes the same point with new wine and old skins. New wine is not even fully fermented yet. I mean, it's just been starting to ferment and they're pouring it into the skins to store it. And so new wine needs a new skin that is pliable and able to stretch and to expand and to accept the fermentation gases and the things that are going on in fermentation. If you put fermenting wine into an old wineskin that is already stretched and is already hardened, then it will burst and you'll lose the wineskin and the wine both. Both stories tell us the same thing. The new does not match the old. And so what is Jesus' answer about how he and his disciples are acting then? By illustration, he says, being a disciple means being filled with the new life, following the new covenant, being part of a new relationship with God, inaugurating the new kingdom. This is the new living, dynamic, spirit-filled life, and it does not match, and you cannot pour it into old patterns of religion. It doesn't fit into old patterns of life, even old values and morals. It doesn't fit what the Pharisees do. It doesn't even fit what John the Baptist and his disciples have made out of the law. Keep this in mind. You cannot conform a new, disruptive, living, dynamic Jesus and the life that he gives with old, dead, legal systems of religion. Paul explains this in Romans 7. He says, it's like being married. The law was something that we were married to. But when your spouse dies, you're no longer legally bound to your spouse. You are set free from that covenant obligation to your spouse. And he says, Jesus has done that to the law. We are no longer married to the law. The law, in the sense of our covenant obligation to it, is dead, and we are free to live in Christ. So the new dynamic life that Jesus gives us does not fit in the old law of the covenant. They don't work together. What Jesus is doing, he's trying to explain to both the Pharisees and to John the Baptist and his disciples, is that he is doing something new, and the old can't contain it. The new thing bursts out of the old thing. In fact, the new thing will destroy the old thing. So Jesus is demonstrating his authority here to realign our religious habits and to realign our hearts and to realign our thinking and our values and our family morals and everything about our old life. Whether it's old religion or old life, Jesus says, I have authority and I cannot be contained by what your life was or what your religion was before. In both of these examples, he's not overturning the law. He doesn't overturn what came before, but he fulfills what has come before and then does something new. We'll see this soon. He's fulfilling the law and revealing the fresh new life that the law contained, but that had been lost by routine and tradition. He's showing us that what we think of as religion is not what he's come to do. So on a personal level, it works like this. As we align our lives behind Christ, as we put our hope in him, as we believe in him, as we trust in him, as we give our lives over to him, he begins to transform our lives. He transforms our culturally set ways of thinking. He has the authority to dig around in our traditions and even dig around in our values and our morals and shed new light on how to worship and how to sacrifice and how to honor the heart of God.
He has the authority to tear down old things in order to build something new, as he gives that same uh, job to his prophet Jeremiah. We think we know how to treat certain people. We think we know how we are meant to react to situations. We think we understand justice or even mercy and forgiveness. And Jesus says, no, not really. You don't really understand justice. You don't really understand mercy. You don't really understand forgiveness. The way that you've been doing it and the things that you are clinging to in your old life or your old religion are not correct. I've come and I have permission to do something new, to teach you how to think and to teach you even how to feel differently. I've come to give you a new life. And there's a conflict at the heart of these two charges that the Pharisees and John's disciples bring. This is a collision of two authorities. The authority of Jesus on one hand and the authority of religious rituals and human described values on the other. And so Jesus' lesson for us in this conflict, our traditions and values cannot have more authority than the word of God and the authority of Jesus at work in our life. The authority of Jesus blasts through all other things and claims that authority on us. On our flesh, fear, sin, tradition, habits, family history, value, things that have happened to us, things we think should happen to other people, cultural norms, even the law of God. Jesus comes in and says, I have authority, I have disruptive power to do something new. Your old ways are not my ways. Old wineskins cannot contain the new life and the disruptive power of Jesus. And so let's just see how Jesus unpacks this. Jesus responds to both charges that are brought before him, both accounts of what he's doing. The act of him eating with sinners and his disciples not fasting when they should. So what new life, new wine is Jesus pouring out? What are the new things that he is doing and teaching that the old wineskins are getting stretched uncomfortably about and are about to burst? And what can we take from this is he doing in our life that stretches our life to where we feel like we're going to burst unless we accept the fact that we have new life from Jesus. So Matthew 9, 10 to 11, it's Jesus calls a tax collector to follow him. First of all, can you imagine that? As a tax collector, and not thinking of tax collectors in our world, but tax collectors where they were colluding with the enemy, uh, the Roman Empire. And then Jesus goes to this tax collector's house and eats dinner with him. And, you know, it's, it's bad enough that they were collaborators with the Romans, and then the fact that as tax collectors for the Romans, they were just given a certain amount of money that they needed to collect for Rome. Rome didn't care how much money they collected over top of that. They weren't paid by Rome to, to collect taxes. They were just given authority to collect taxes, and then they could pay themselves whatever they wanted on top of what they collected for Rome. Uh, so if Rome needed a, whatever, 100 denarii, then uh, they would collect 140 denarii pay Rome 100 and take 40 for themselves. Uh, That's just the way it worked. So tax collectors were considered sinners. They were considered traitors. They were not righteous. They were betrayers of Jews. They were shunned. And so you would never eat with them and never show your approval to them. They were collaborators with the enemy. And Jesus is actually eating with Matthew and all of his sinner friends. And so now the old wineskin, the old cloth says, hey, the law gave us a rule to be righteous in this particular way, and there is scriptural counsel for this. I can go to Psalm chapter 1, which says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So we have been told how to follow the law, we've been told how to be righteous, and we've told specifically not to sit with sinners. So you read that, and you think, maybe we should stay completely away from these people. And so the Pharisees see Jesus sharing a meal with sinners and tax collectors, and they are sincerely ruffled at what they see. In their view of things, he is out of bounds. He's breaking the rule. He is breaking the heart of God, or breaking the intent of the heart of God. So the rule is, stay away from sinful people. 
But that's old wineskin thinking. Look at Jesus' response. It says, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Doctors don't spend time around sick. Doctors do spend time around sick people because they want to make people well. Doctors don't engage with sick people because they love sickness, but because they love health. And Jesus is the same. He doesn't spend time with sinners out of a love for sin, but out of a love for people that he wants to draw to repentance and righteousness, to call them righteous. So he cares about them. The prior priority of saving people is more important than adhering to misinterpreted commands. And the Pharisees, in their pursuit of rule following, have missed the point of the law, and they've actually missed the heart of God. Now let's be clear. There is a proper place for determining that the greatest influences of your life, what the greatest influences are on your life, and the places that you should go, and that they should not draw you away from God. That is wisdom. That's the wisdom of Psalm 1. Be careful where you sit, who you listen to, what counsel you adhere to. Definitely wisdom. But that's not exactly what Psalm 1 is saying. By simply following the rule, by making Psalm 1 a religious happen, habit, then you might think that you are never to associate with scoffers or never to associate with sinful people. But that's not how God intended it. What Psalm 1 means in the context of Jesus is not being influenced. Jesus is not being influenced by Matthew and the sinners. Jesus is influencing them. Jesus is not walking in the counsel of the wicked. Jesus is giving the wicked counsel. Jesus is not sitting in the seat of scoffers. In other words, Jesus is not himself becoming a scoffer. He is answering the scoffers. And you can see the difference. Physicians are not encouraging sickness. Physicians are curing it and comforting the sick. And so Jesus is explaining to the to the uh, Pharisees that they don't understand what he's teaching. And then he says in verse 13, to drive home the point, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so Jesus is quoting Hosea to the Pharisees. And this is a devastating statement from him. He says to the worldwide experts on the law and the scripture, he says, go to school. You don't understand what Hosea said. I mean, it's an incredible statement. You can just imagine a student in a professor's class at university handing a test back to the professor and saying to him, teacher, you know, you need to go back to school because you don't understand what you're testing me on. I mean, it was a cute test, but you don't actually understand what you're asking. So let me point out some of your mistakes in this test so that you can, you know, write a better one next time and maybe pass the test yourself. That's essentially what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. And so you can imagine they got a little hot under the collar at that. What Jesus is referring to in Hosea, which the Pharisees should know, is that the people were being dutiful in the sacrifices. They knew the right animals to bring, what feasts to host on what days, how to do all of the things of the law by the book. But they missed, in their satisfaction of the rituals, they missed out that God wanted them to show mercy and love and to care for their neighbors. And so Jesus is not saying that the law was wrong, but that the wineskins had become old. And Jesus is simply saying, look, it's the time for new wine. It's time for these old wineskins to burst because you are not understanding the heart of God. You're not following the law correctly. This new wine that I'm pouring out is not going to fit comfortably into the way you have interpreted religion. This is what God has always been doing. Isaiah 43, 18-19 says this, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 
This is the way God has always acted. He's always doing a new thing. He's always moving his people forward into new knowledge of truth and new understanding and new levels and new capacity of mercy and love. And that's what he wants. God has to keep digging up and rooting out and starting over and pushing his people. We call it um, revival. We call it renewal. We call it redemption. We call it reformation. There's lots of words that we have for this, but God is digging and rooting out and starting over and pushing his people out of their routines and into new things. Or maybe put more encouragingly, God is constantly setting his people free from old familiar feelings and values that are rooted in flesh and not spirit. He especially can't pour new things into old routines and systems. He can't pour his new life into old thoughts and feelings that we cling to and refuse to give up. We think of things like being treated badly and I have a right to hold a grudge. Or my family has always done things this way and always felt this way and that's the way I'm supposed to feel. Or this is what was done to me and this is my history and I can't escape that. Or this is what love means to me or this is what justice or fairness is and I'm not going to change my mind. I've always felt this way. This is who I am. God has to go in there and dig those things up and set us free from the past because he cannot pour his new life into that old wineskin. The old systems are not meant for what God is planning to do next in your life. God keeps on renovating. He keeps on redeeming. He keeps on remaking. He keeps on recreating for his people, for the church, for each of us in the months and years ahead in our lives. It's possible for us to get all our religious I's dotted and all our T's crossed, but we are not open to the next relationship or the next restoration or the next reconciliation that God is attempting to do in the world and in our own lives if we cling to the past. Secondly, let's look at the second story. The heart of God and Jesus, and even the law, is always relationship over rituals. The second story is about fasting. The first story... I should have said was that the heart of God and Jesus and even the law is people over programs. It's about people. Now it's about relationship over rituals. The second story is about fasting. It's a question raised by the disciples of John the Baptist. And we don't know a lot about John's disciples, but we can assume that they are pretty hardcore, right? If they were following John the Baptist who lived in the desert and who was wearing garments of caramel hair and eating locusts and honey, I mean... Now that I think about it, no wonder they were fasting so much if locusts were the menu again. Uh, you know, okay, I think I'm fasting today. Let me know when pizza and wings are coming out. But these guys were intense, right? Okay, camel hair, eating locusts in the desert. John was intense. He was a mighty man of God who prepared the way for Jesus' coming. You can assume that his disciples followed in his footsteps. And so John's disciples come and say, we are fasting. The Pharisees are fasting even. Why aren't your disciples fasting? And it's interesting because we know that Jesus did fast. Matthew 4, he fasted for 40 days and then faced the devil. And in Matthew 6, he spoke about fasting, assuming that fasting will be an appropriate part of his follower's life as he does here. He says the same thing. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is away, taken away with the, from them, and then they will fast. And so Jesus basically says, look, I'm here. And because of that, let's not mourn and let's not fast. Let's celebrate. When you go to a wedding, you don't say, no cake for me. You know, don't, don't give me even, uh, you know, a chocolate beforehand because I'm fasting. The wedding day is anticipated. We go to the wedding anticipating feasts. And so Jesus says there's something different and new going on here in your midst. You're not perceiving what is new. That this is the wedding. This is not the time after the wedding. 
But secondly, what Jesus is saying here is that fasting has its place. It's a good thing, but not as a ritual and as a tradition. Fasting has no value if it's just a routine that has become a rut and it's lost its freshness and new life. Paul lays it out for the new church in his letter of Colossians. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, Paul understands what Jesus is teaching here. He says, don't let let people judge you about whether you're feasting or fasting, about whether you're observing this holiday or that holiday. Don't let people judge you about the choice of your diet. Uh, All of these things that are religious rituals are just a shadow of the thing to come. They are not the real meat. They are not the real substance. The substance belongs to Christ. And so anything that we are doing is about Christ. That's where the substance lies. We do things in our spiritual disciplines. We do things in our religious practices that are good things, but they are the shadow of the real thing. So fasting is not meant to be just a routine. If it is, then it's simply a shadow unless it points to the substance. The purpose of fasting is a relationship with Jesus. The reason that we fast is because we want more of Jesus and we want to hunger after him instead of hungering after the things of this world. As long as Jesus was here, his disciples didn't have to fast to get their fill of Jesus. But now that Jesus is gone, we fast as a means to fill up on him. The priority is not the ritual of fasting. The fasting is the structure or the form. The fasting is the skin that the wine is in. The real priority is the relationship with Jesus. The disciples of John and the Pharisees are looking at what is lacking in the religious ritual of Jesus, wondering why he doesn't do their old wineskin rituals. But Jesus is speaking to the need of the relationship over ritual. So this is what is not easy to come to grips with. If you're like me, you probably also wander back into the routines and patterns that are comfortable. You wander back into even ways of thinking that are comfortable. Things that are known and that are understandable. Things that shelter us from disruption and change. If you're like me, you want to hang on to what has worked for you in the past and what has kept you comfortable. If you're like me, you have unconsciously and carefully constructed a perspective on your faith. And you, your walk with Christ is structured in such a way that affirms what you already believe to be true. And it also rationalizes your personal approach to both faith and the world. In fact, many people come to Christ, so to speak, and find that nothing they believe has to change. That would be very surprising. That would mean that you are already righteous and perfect before meeting Christ and having his Holy Spirit in your life. If you have come to Christ and you have met the Holy Spirit, then it is highly unlikely that your views of the world have to change, don't have to change. It is highly likely that they do. In fact, Jesus says, I am this disruptive power that I have come to change and that you need to be born again and that you need to transform. And so what we find, though, is that even though we've had that transforming power, our flesh pulls us back into comfortable routines, even comfortable ways of thinking, thinking about certain people, thinking about certain ways of people's behavior, thinking about certain political parties, um, thinking about how we're supposed to treat people in certain situations, uh, following the traditions of our family or the way that we've been brought up rather than following the, the instruction that we have in the family of God from the scriptures. And so what happens is, even as Christians, we don't really want the new wine that Jesus is pouring out because our old wineskins are set in their shape and their size. And as Jesus pours out new wine, it makes us very uncomfortable. It feels like we're going to burst. It means we might have to change. 
It wasn't the aim of Jesus to say the law was wrong, nor is it my aim to say that any particular ministry or any particular habit or law or practice or opinion that you hold is wrong. But it might be. It may need to be examined. If you find when you read the scripture and when the Holy Spirit speaks into your life, when you go to God in prayer or when you meditate upon the condition of your heart or your mind, if you find that Jesus is pulling you in uncomfortable ways and things that you shrink back from or actively resist, that's the old wineskin resisting the new wine. And we need to be careful of that. There's a profound truth that all of these things that we hold on to, our own personal ways of managing God and rationalizing our behavior and rationalizing our feelings, of working out our own sense of right and righteousness, and even the very law of God itself, they are only of value as long as, as and up to the point of their submission to the authority of Jesus in our life. Remember that the context of all of this has been the authority that Jesus has, the authority to disrupt and to transform, to jar us out of our set ways of thinking, to shift our perspective, to draw us back into line with the heart of God. And we all need this. We need our values and our morals and our thoughts and our feelings and our history to be put under submission to Jesus Christ. All of our arguments and personal views and preferences can never have a greater authority than Jesus and what Jesus is alive and actively working at in the life of believers and alive and working at in those people who are seeking him or who are in need of him that may still be in darkness. We have to embrace what is new and disruptive in order to join the mission of Jesus. Jesus came with the power and authority in life to do something new. And many of you have probably heard the old saying that Jesus loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Simple, maybe, and maybe a little bit corny, but true. Jesus is always doing something new, alive, and fresh in the lives of his people. This is true of every Christian. It's true of his whole church. There's three fast applications I want to make of this really, really quickly in conclusion. First of all, the Christian application. When we accept Christ at the center of our life, our new life with Christ doesn't fit the old life anymore. We can't behave the way we did before we became Christians. We can't think the way we thought before we became Christians. We can't even feel the way we felt before we became Christians because we have a new wine approach to ourselves, to our inner thoughts, to our values, and to others. And then there's a personal application. God is transforming and sanctifying you. He is making you a new creation. God cannot do new things in your life if you won't let go of old routines and habits. If we value old things and old rules over anticipation and expectancy of freedom for God to do a new work in our life, then we will frustrate and limit what we can experience from God. And so personally, we have to embrace the new and release the old. And then finally, as a church, Newness brings new life to our worship, new life to our ministries, to our fellowship, to our community. The anticipation that God is doing something new makes us look for opportunities that are here today that weren't here yesterday. It should cause us to consider doing something we've never done before, to engage in ways that we could not have ever expected of ourselves, and especially in this season right now. There are new opportunities in new ways. God is doing a new thing even today. And we should not long for the past, but look forward with anticipation to the future. To embrace the teaching of Jesus is to embrace a joyful, dynamic movement of new creation and new life and new power, especially in this season when we must embrace newness. Anticipate the stretching that will come as Jesus fills us up with whatever new is coming. It is exciting. And as I said, I needed this message today for my heart as much as I needed to convey it to you. And I just pray by the Holy Spirit that you would uh, maybe join me in looking forward to the new 
with excitement and joy. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this word. I thank you that it has come to me in an encouraging and refreshing way. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that delivers it to each of our hearts. And I know that everyone listening today or tomorrow or a year from now will hear it in the way that they need to hear it because your Holy Spirit is active. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.